Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 or your bulletin. There's an outline for you. Print it in the bulletin. Give you a little context why we're in this passage. We've been preaching through 1 Thessalonians. I've skipped to this passage, and at the session's request, the request of your elders, I'm doing three sermons on this text. Last week, kind of an overview of the text. This week, using the text to address a very specific Christian privilege, and that is how do we talk to one another about sin? How do we confront one another? And next week, we'll finish this little three-part series on how do we talk about other people's sin, the godly use of our words. So we're in this text here for the second of three weeks, fairly short text. Again, it's sort of a jumping off point, as it were. Here's what the Word of God says. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. My wife and I were in a crisis. Our four-year-old put a popcorn kernel in his ear. And it was stuck in there really snug. We were in a rental house at the time, and we simply could not find an object to dislodge it. And it was panic time for us. I mean, do we just leave it in there? No. <laughs> so after many prayers, and clearly the grace of God, we found something and got that kernel out of his ear. In the same way, we get popcorn kernels stuck in the ears of our relationships. We live in a fallen world, and even for those who love Jesus, inevitably, we hurt each other and we sin against each other. Paul is acknowledging that in the text. The end of 14, be patient with everyone. Verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil. Translated, our relationships weren't built for sin. Ears, not for popcorn kernels. <laughs> and we've got to address them. Let me push stop for a second and Acknowledge that perhaps you are new to Wallace, you're new to Christianity, and you may think, this is strange. Why did I come here this morning? But think about it. You don't have to be religious to dislike corruption, lies, cover-ups in government, business, and education. Nobody likes that stuff. It needs to be dealt with. And God is saying the same thing in his precious people, the church. And really it's in that spirit that Paul later wrote in 1 Timothy 5.20 this, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. 
stand in fear of what? Not just what unchecked sin does in our relationships, but what unchecked sin does in me. Having to resolve conflict and sin in our relationships, according to our pastor of youth and families, Michael Seifert, Michael says, counseled me on this sermon, that failing to examine our own sin creates a prolonged opportunity for the enemy to make us feel superior to others. So thankfully, God gives us tools. We're going to sin against each other. We're going to get popcorn kernels in the ears of our relationships. And I want to look at this text with these two questions. Number one, why should we bother addressing sin in each other? And number two, what are the three typical scenarios in which sin enters into our relationships? Okay, that makes sense. Number one, why should we bother addressing sin in our relationships? Sidebar, let's define sin. What do we mean by that? You may not be sure what sin is. You can define sin in any number of different ways with respect to the law of God. Sin is doing what the law forbids. On the other hand, sin is failing to do what the law commands. You could define sin in terms of a heart problem. Sin is having greater affection in your heart for something in the place of God. It's loving anything more than you love God. Sin is a heart problem. You could define sin in terms of relationships, and that would be, I've sinned against you if I'd failed to give you what God calls me to give you. I owe you love, I owe you respect, I owe you help, I owe you patience, kindness, honor, service. Any lack of me giving you what I owe you creates sin in the relationship. And you could define sin in terms of your relationship with God. What is the great commandment? Loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, in word, thought, and deed. Any deviation from that is sin. We've defined sin. Can you sweep that under the carpet and not deal with that in relationship? This text is saying no. So let me give you two concrete reasons why we've got to deal with sin in our relationships. Number one, it wouldn't be loving not to deal with sin. It wouldn't be loving. Sin is bad for people. It's bad for relationships. And unaddressed, it tends to fester and metastasize into worse sin. Put it this way. Sin doesn't idly sit by and let sin hurt another person. That's why Paul says in this text, we urge you. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idol. Always seek to do good for one another. And last week we saw that's a marvelous definition of love. Always seeking to do good for one another. It is not good that we'd left that popcorn kernel in the ear of our four-year-old. It is not good that we leave popcorn kernels in the ears of our relationships. Now, another sidebar. Wisdom may dictate that certain relationships need significant altering even after you've extended forgiveness for what that person did to you. Parents, your kids get into relationships that are awful for your kids. You want those to end because you love your kids. It's not good for them. Some of you have had to flee abusive relationships. So even though you forgive, there are consequences to the way people treat you. End of sidebar. What's the point? 
Love seeks a remedy for the struggle. And it's always tailored to the individual. Don't you love Paul's genius? Admonish the unruly. That's what they need. (laughs) They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Encourage the faint-hearted. They don't need admonishment. They need encouragement. Help the weak and whoever you're doing it with. Be patient. David Miner contributed to this sermon as well. This is sort of a joint effort of your elders and pastors, and David points out that the Bible talks specifically about admonishing. It's the Greek word nutheo, which means to put into mind. It's this grace whereby in dealing with sin, we are putting into each other's minds what the, what the truth is. But there are conditions that come with admonishing. Think of Romans 15, 14. Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, <laughs> filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. That's, that's that verb, nutheo. What, what's he saying? Well, if you're filled with goodness and filled with knowledge, that's a healthy place to begin to think about dealing with somebody else's sin. Likewise, Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, let the word of Christ Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. You see, what is a precondition to doing good admonishing? The word of Christ is dwelling in you. It's even a context of worship, singing, making melodies. So if if my heart's disposition is not fundamentally worship, and my mind is not fundamentally controlled by the word of God, that's probably a dangerous place for me to go about seeking to admonish you. And the whole question of admonishing forces me to ask about the condition of my own heart. What does Proverbs 17 tell, tell us? A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. My willingness to receive correction from you, rebuke, shows whether or not my heart is uh, filled with the wisdom, the grace, and the humility of the Lord. Here's a very interesting illustration of the importance of admonishment. We are not saying we want a nitpicky culture in the church. No, we want a safe and a healthy culture. Apparently, a certain Korean airline had a significantly worse safety record than other airlines. They also had a culture in which it was almost impossible for the co-pilot to challenge or admonish the pilot. They changed that culture, and guess what happened? Their safety record improved to match other airlines. Much healthier culture. The pilot has to be free to get some challenge and admonishment from his co-pilot. That's the first reason why we have to address sin. It would not be loving otherwise. Secondly, God doesn't ignore sin. Adam and Eve blow it in the Garden of Eden. What does God do? He immediately steps in. He finds them. Where are you? And he covered their guilt and he promised to send a man who would one day make it safe to come back into paradise. That man, Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning of history at the fall, God sets a precedent. God sets a precedent. He in love will send his son to save the world from sin. Likewise, we are sent to one another to save each other from the ravages and the danger of sin. Therefore, think of Jesus as both the motivation as well as the model for reconciling others in sin. How is Jesus the motivation? Well, in love, Jesus came... (laughs) 
to seek what's best for us, our salvation. See, what's, what, what was the, what's the third most loving thing God has done for you? One, he created you. Two, he sustained you. What's the next loving thing God has done for you if you follow Jesus? He sent a spirit to convict you of your sin or you'd never know your need for Jesus. In love, God sends the spirit to convict us of how much we need a savior. And in love, the spirit shows us how absolutely sufficient this Jesus is for our salvation. Christ has delivered you from the everlasting dreadful penalty of sin. Christ has freed you from the tyranny of sin and giving you a new heart. And Jesus reveals himself to you constantly so that you see his beauty is more attractive than sin. All in love, beloved. God, Jesus, is the motivation for it. And secondly, Jesus is the model. What has God done in Jesus Christ but modeled God's passion to reconcile all things to himself? Jesus starts his earthly ministry. What is he doing? He's reconciling things, whether it's unhealthy eyes, unhealthy ears, unhealthy hands, unhealthy feet, unhealthy hungry stomachs. Jesus is constantly setting things right, casting demons out of people because they ruin people's lives. And best of all, Jesus came to reconcile us to his Father through the blood of his cross. And Paul says that's not where it ends. Paul says Christ, God was in Christ reconciling the word to himself and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Look on the handout at 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What was Jesus' ministry? Reconcile the word, the world to God. What is your ministry? Reconcile sinners to God and certainly be reconciled to one another. You know, our denomination takes that so seriously that we actually have in your membership vows an allusion to that. The fifth membership vow to join a PCA church ends with, do you promise to promote the peace and purity of the church? We even have almost a laughable, laughable example of this in Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Apparently there's two ladies who can't get along, and Paul writes this. I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. <laughs> Here their names are in the book of life, the eternal word of God, or Euodia and Syntyche, because they can't get along. <laughs> That's how seriously God takes it. That's the first point of the sermon. Why should we bother? It wouldn't be loving to leave people in sin. Secondly, God initiates reconciling us in our sin. Number two, what are the three typical scenarios in which sin must be addressed? We're going to look at three. Number one, you discover someone in sin. Number two, someone sins against you. Number three, you sin against someone. Okay? Number one. You discover someone in sin. This is the text Dory read earlier in the service from Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. 
But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor. Each will have to bear his own load. What's the situation? You become aware of another person's sin. What's the goal? The key verb is restore. Katarkidzo. That verb was used for the, for the it was a, uh, a surgical term for the resetting of a bone that had broken, and also in commerce for the mending of nets, fishing nets that had broken. You see the idea. The goal of restoration is to put that person back where they're functioning the way God designed them to function. See, sin makes serving ourselves desirable. Love rescues us from that delusion, making serving Jesus more desirable. It's probably on the strength of this that we hear echoed in Paul's admonition here to restore the words of Jesus in Luke 17, 3. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. The situation, someone is caught in sin. The goal, restore them. That's what love does. What's the assumption? You who are spiritual. Does that mean there's a class of Christians who are spiritual and a class of Christians who aren't? No. Paul, in my mind, is hearkening back into chapter 5 where he has exhorted all of us to not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the Spirit, be people who are utterly and completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, at war first in ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, battling and dwelling sin, being people who are intoxicated with the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of glory, the Spirit of love. Those are spiritual people. You are qualified then to restore another believer. And I would just say, if I'm not a man seeking to walk with the Lord, be filled with his word, have my eyes on Christ, not concerned with the power of the Holy Spirit, I better, shouldn't, I better not touch your sin, right, as a rule. That's the assumption. You're doing this in the power of the Holy Spirit. What's the style? Paul says in the spirit of gentleness. People are fragile. They don't like to admit defeat, failure. They fear rejection. So correcting others should always come when you're experiencing the gentle and the humble heart of Jesus. It's the gentle, humble heart of Jesus, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 10, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. If that really isn't a thing marinating where you are, I'm not sure that correction's going to go so well. Because what may happen is your anger might take over. Sometimes we discover people in sin and we're angry. Is there a place for righteous anger? Absolutely. But when you're seeking to restore someone caught in a trespass, that needs to be checked in your spirit. Your anger needs to be surrounded, as it were, by the gentleness and the meekness of Christ. Most people don't respond well when we're angry at them. Likewise, that person might be getting angry at you for calling out their sin. And you might want to go, in return. No, let them be angry. The meekness and gentleness of Christ can absorb that until they calm down. And as John Daly, one of your ruling elders, points out, resist painting them in negative colors just because they're caught in a sin doesn't negate who they are in Christ, their character, what they've done for Jesus. Resist washing them all in, in negative colors. Good advice, John. What's the method for doing this? Start with self-examination. Paul says in verse 1, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. 
That's a, that, that verb is a present tense. Keep watch on yourself. In other words, I'm staying focused on my weakness. Stay focused on that. What am I telling myself? I catch you in a sin, I'm telling myself, that could be me. That would be me, but for the grace of God. And then, then Paul says, anyone who thinks he's something when he is nothing deceives himself. And that's just really a great position to begin to restore another sinner, and that is to say, I'm nothing apart from Jesus. And I'm held to the same standard of righteousness by Jesus. And on Judgment Day, the only thing God's going to be talking to me about is my sin, not yours. Keep that in view. So start with self-examination and then move to gathering information. Don't assume too much. Ask questions. Examine the situation. Be be inquisitive. Seek clarity. Confirm your impressions. Be certain what you see is in fact the case. Now, don't lead with accusations. Be a little agnostic, charitable as it were. I may be mistaken. And don't assign motives. You really don't know motives until that person confesses them. Here's probably a silly illustration to make the point. Let's suppose you go down Baltimore Avenue, you go into the Starbucks there on the right, and you walk in the Starbucks, you put your computer down on a table, and you turn around only to see me scurry past the front counter, grab a candy bar from underneath, and run out the door. And you're like, oh my gosh, the interim's a shoplifter. So get on your computer and put it on Facebook. Yes? No. Hopefully you'd run after me. Mike, Mike, did did I just see you shoplift? Oh, I can see why it looked like that. Actually, I paid for it. I had to run to the restroom. I didn't grab it yet. And in the restroom, I realized my parking's running out. So I ran out of the restroom, ran and got that thing, and went out as quick as I could. I can understand why it looked like I was shoplifting. I wasn't. Thank you for coming after me. Thank you. If you're like, oh man, Mike's really intimidating. I, I can't do anything about this. Then get somebody else and come talk to me about it. Confirm your impression. Here's why. I am in fact, as an officer of this church, held to a higher standard. The vows I took when I was ordained are harder and more stringent than the vows you took as members for a very good reason. You should hold me to a higher standard. You should be aghast that I would shoplift or fill in the blank. Again, if you feel uneasy coming to me as the pastor of the church, by all means, seek counsel about what to do or grab another person, seek another officer. What's the purpose of this process? Paul says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If Jesus bore the judgment of our sin on the cross, we can bear the burden of getting into one another's mess. You might find that there's trying circumstances underlying these sins that people get caught up in. Let me give you an example from my life of bearing one another's burdens in calling out sin, as it were. I have met annually with six other pastor friends for about 20 years. We have a retreat We have fun, we worship, we pray, and everybody shares what's going on in their life. In this context, apart from Janice helping me see my sin and deal with my sin, in this context, I've never known 
my sin more clearly than these brothers speaking into my life. They know me well. They love me. They love the flock that I shepherd. And for the sake of the flock and myself, they're willing to call out sin in my life. One such sin. Mike, you always seem to be in a hurry when you're meeting with somebody, like you're on the clock. And that can communicate to people that they're not important. And I took that, it was true. You know, you look at my calendar, back when I was pastoring in Lynchburg, I had them stacked up, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, you know, had them all stacked up and I had to get on to the next one. And that wasn't a very loving way to do my calendar. I needed to allow time. So they called me out on this. This is something I need to pray about, something I needed to change. That was a good thing. I will call that bearing my burden with me. I won't tell you the other sins that they've called it. But it's all good stuff. It's all good stuff. That's the first scenario. You, you see someone caught in a sin. Second scenario, someone sins against you. Jesus anticipates this in Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. What's the situation? In a relationship you have, someone sins against you. They hurt you in some way. What principles structure the procedure? Number one, establish that it's sin. Maybe use some of the investigative stuff that I talked about just a moment ago. Because sometimes people experience your carelessness or your immaturity or lack of awareness or thoughtlessness or personality quirk, an unwise reaction to a situation. Here's an example. When we were renting a gym years ago at my church in Lynchburg, I showed up, I saw something that wasn't right, I walked in, and my, the first thing I said to one of the deacons was, David, we need to do this about that. Was that? And then, I, and then I realized, and I apologized to him, asked his forgiveness, because I was sort of treating him like an object that needed to do a job. I didn't even stop and say, good morning, how are you? Now can we get to this? Was that sin? And I, I don't know. Maybe but certainly it was insensitivity, uh, personality quirk, an unwise reaction to a situation. Anyway, what is sin? It's a failure to give what God is owed, either by omission, not doing what God wants, or commission, doing what God doesn't want. That's possible the other person doesn't see it as sin. So you might have to get help determining that. Jesus says, go tell him his fault. Bring it to light. Show it in the word of God. That's the place you re- real, where you really know what sin is. The Word of God says so. And Jesus says, keep it between you and him. Strictly speaking, it's nobody else's business. Guess what? You don't come into worship in the morning, and we roll the screens down, and God begins to tell everybody in here about all your sins. Thank God he doesn't do that. Keep it between you. Has he listened? Yes! He repents. Great, let's have a party, that's awesome, victory. And don't hesitate to follow up. If if you're the one who sinned, follow up with this person and say, let me tell you how I'm doing. You need to pray with me some more. I'm struggling with this still. Or you follow up with them and say, how are you doing? How can I pray for you in that? Now that may not happen. So step two, 
If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Verse 16, ratch up the accountability. Ignoring sin is serious business. Imagine my 36-year-old son with a popcorn kernel in his ear. It's unthinkable. Ignoring sin is serious business. What's the purpose? Jesus says that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That doesn't mean people witness them sinning against you. It means that they're a witness to them failing to come to grips with the seriousness of the sin against which they sinned against you. Now, there's a special category, and that is church officers. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.19, don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Suppose this is a situation, and heaven forbid, somebody involved in the finances of the church detects that I'm stealing from the church. And they go, oh my goodness. I think that verse says they should go grab someone else, presumably an elder, and come to me and say, Mike, all the evidence points to the fact that you're draining money from the church coffers. What do you say? Bring a witness. Does it stay just between those two people? I think in the case of a pastor, no. They should then tell me to inform my session I have been stealing from you. My session needs to know that about this grievous act on my part. Step three, after making every effort to seek the welfare of the offender, they're still unrepentant. It's a terrible situation. It's a dangerous situation. You don't leave it there. You bring in the next level. You tell it to the church. Most people in our Presbyterian tradition believe that means you take it to the elders for them to do a long, careful, patient investigation to what's going on. And then if they, if they con continue in unrepentance, you have no choice but to declare what they are saying about themselves. They have no interest in being a part of Jesus' bride. You have to declare it so. Now you say, that sounds awfully harsh, Mike. Beloved, it happens all the time in our culture, religious or non-religious people. If you're an organization and you work for a business and you're inflicting harm on people in that organization, they kick you out. You break the team rules, you're off the team. Nobody argues with that. The difference is in the church, we are seeking to bring that sort of censure on a person for their good. The, admonit, the, the, the act of disfellowshipping them, the technical word is excommunication, is designed to bring pressure on them to bring about repentance. We're doing it for their good. That's the, the goal of discipline, as is the purity of the church. What good does it do to have a public organization where people's public sins are tolerated and they come in here and worship every Sunday? That doesn't look very good. It brings disrepute on the precious name of Jesus. And that's the third point of discipline. We who bear the name of Jesus should do so in a way that it is not tarnished blatantly. Last scenario, and then we're finished the sermon. You sin against someone. See the three scenarios? You find somebody in sin, they sin against you. Last scenario, you sin against someone. And, and I realize a sermon like this may not answer all your questions. I apologize for that. You know, we're dealing with a 30 to 35 minutes thing here, and I'm not smart enough to address all your questions. So I apologize. Last, uh, last situation, you sin against someone. 
Matthew 5.23, Jesus speaking. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What's the situation? The Holy Spirit convicts you that you sinned against someone. And here's what's really interesting about this text. The prior verses are Jesus talking about anger. He says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, whoever murders is liable to judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus is anticipating the fact that people make you angry. You incur, you have to bear with their foolishness. So what is this an opportunity for? Search your heart. Why are you angry? Humility would stop and say something like this. Yeah, but what about me? Don't I make other people angry? Are there things God might have against me? And so the principle Jesus is saying is what makes the gift on the altar acceptable is the heart and the motive that brings it. Am I doing this for the right reason with the right motives? And Jesus anticipates that as you're offering your gift, he uses these words, there you remember. He seems to be asking, what jogged your memory that someone had that you'd sinned against someone? Well, what is the altar? The altar was the place of sacrifice, and every faithful Jew that brought their gift for the altar of sacrifice would know what? That that animal, whether it's a bird or a cow or a sheep, that animal did nothing wrong to deserve death. That animal is suffering the death my sins have incurred. And that becomes a stimulus to me to think about the God of the altar and the Lamb of the altar, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, every altar in Israel screamed, you need to be reconciled to God and you need to be reconciled at the cost of the blood of a human person, not an animal. Animals won't do. Every altar pointed to the fact that God wanted so much things right between you and Him. He sent Jesus, His Son, to be sacrificed on the cross. He took the wrath for you. What grace, what mercy, what kindness, what love. Lord, I can't help but worship you. See, but what is worship? Worship is an assertion that everything's okay between us, that we're reconciled. And Jesus is saying, that's right, but guess what? It's not just you and me being reconciled. Stop! Before you leave the gift, go get reconciled with your brother that you sinned against. In other words, God wants mirrored in our relationships the glory of his being reconciled to us. <laughs> I mean, it's stunning that Jesus says, put worship on hold till you make that relationship right with your brother. So the Holy Spirit convicts you. You go to your brother and say, please forgive me, I did this. Your brother or your sister forgives you and you go back to the altar 
and you make your gift and you are revealing the glory of the God who, as it were, put on hold judgment day to send Jesus to be judged in our place to give us the incredible joy of being right with God and in that power, right with each other. Let's pray. How can we not our merciful, gracious, loving God be reconciled to each other when you reconciled us to yourself through your precious Son's suffering? And now we come to the table of reconciliation. It screams reconciliation. It screams it's done. It's finished. God's done it. And even coming to this table, we're saying we're right with each other. So work this marvelous grace in us as a body. The courage, the love to deal with sin in each other, with gentleness, without anger, with, with the word of God as our guide. Bring health. You've saved us to do this in a tangible way to love each other. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.